Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you today. Uh, a real privilege to be here. Um, Dave, I, I really have loved it. It's been, uh, dude, five, I think five years when we started. I started when Dave and uh, Colton came on. In fact, Dave, the first weekend, if Dave's still in here somewhere, and he should be because he should be listening to this. Anyways, but David, uh, David and I both went out uh, to the Nichols uh, house by the lake, and Conrad, you were out there. You'd come in from camp. And uh, you probably don't remember that, but you should. But it was, uh, that, uh, I was obviously inspirational. But that was the very beginning of our time here. That was five years ago. And, um, and my time at Ellerslie, um, uh, my, my senior pastor used to tell me this. He was on staff at Briarcrest where I went to college. And he would say, Sid, when we are at Briarcrest, we always remembered that we did not shape Briarcrest, Briarcrest shaped us. And then he would say, Sid, in your work here at the church, I was 11 years at Lethbridge Free. He said, Sid, we have not shaped the church. The church has shaped us. And I, um, and I experienced that here at Ellerslie over the last number of years where God has used this space to also shape me. And I'm very thankful for that. It's been a real privilege. Okay, a couple things we want to do this morning. Uh, real, real quickly, because uh, the conversation requires so much more than what the next 25 minutes can give it. But we're going we're gonna to do a couple of things. The first thing we want to do is we want to answer the question, is there such a thing as objective moral truth? So that's going to be uh, the first question that I'd like to quickly answer this morning. I'm going to figure out this in just a second. We'll back that up there. There we go. Is there such a thing as objective moral truth? And so we'll talk a little bit about the foundation of where you know, we come to to actually be able to say that. And by the way, this is no like small question because culture really stands against this idea of objective moral truth truth, at least in terms of how we speak to it. And, um, and in fact, find the conversation or the idea of objective moral truth actually pretty offensive in many ways. And I think to some degree, I understand that. And, and I'm sympathetic to it because some expressions of objective moral truth, not just some, many have been really offensive actually and oppressive as well. So the first thing we want to do is really quickly answer the question, is there such a thing as objective moral truth? And then we want to answer the question, is it good that there's such a thing as objective moral truth? And how can we help people actually experience the truth of Jesus Christ, the objective moral reality of Jesus Christ as being good. And I find in my conversations or experiences, there's two kind of um, concerns that people generally have. Number one, when it comes to the idea of truth, the, the first concern is the idea of truth feels like it constricts my freedom as an individual. And of course, in the West, we have so emphasized the idea of radical individualism that we all have the right to, um, to express who we are ourselves in however way we want live and express that truth. And by the way, that concept of being so focused on the individual self is quite Western and, um, and is actually quite modern in many ways. So in many cultures of many countries, as we know, much more family, much more community oriented. But in our country, we find that, or in the West, we find that, which is one of the reasons why we struggle with this concept. The other, the other concern that we have is not only is it, does it constrict like my freedom, but it leads to oppression. And there's a great concern how people who advocate for objective moral truth often end up becoming oppressors in the different environments that they're in. And I think both of those are really valuable questions, like really appropriate, but there's a way forward that we as followers of Christ have to actually engage those conversations and help people experience the goodness of Jesus Christ and actually experience the goodness of the reality that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so let's, let's dive into this. Okay, is there such a thing as objective moral truth? Um, so this Christmas, uh, just before Christmas, 
my wife and I were in Lethbridge for a wedding. Our niece was getting married. And uh, I'm going to be really honest with you. Like when I talk about weather, I live in Kelowna now. I grew up, by the way, in Manitoba, went to Bible college in Saskatchewan, lived in Alberta for um, 15 years. So I, the, it, weather was not a problem for me. But I have now lived in Kelowna for the last nine years, and it is clear I have become soft. Like it's very clear that I've become soft. I've owned that. And so when we were down in Lethbridge over Christmas time, or just before Christmas, as you can imagine, that when I woke up to minus 35 degrees below zero plus wind chill, I was like not too excited to leave our hotel. Like actually not excited at all. I'm like, they can get married just fine. I don't really need to be there. Like I'm pretty sure this is going to be a great place and would love to stay here. Well, it was the morning um, I was downstairs in the lobby and I got up early and so I was spending some time reading and studying. And then a, um, uh, a lady came in from outside. And it was pretty obvious as I was sitting in the lobby kind of watching what was taking place that that she'd spent some significant time outside. Um, in fact, my guess was that that was probably her home. And, um, and, and she, she was dressed not bad, but her mitts weren't going to cut it. And, and it didn't matter how well you were dressed. If you're staying outside in that kind of weather for very long, it wasn't going to be a good experience for you. As she came into the hotel, uh, the person behind the desk came out and met her um, in between the two uh, sliding doors. And just said to her, said, ma'am, you can't be in here. And, and, and she was having a little bit of a hard time engaging the conversation. And then he said to her, he just said, hey, can I get you a, a, a taxi somewhere? And she goes, yeah, I'd like to get down to the shelter. The shelter was just a few blocks away. But again, at that weather at that time, a few blocks could cost you, like literally could cost your life. Do you realize, people, that we live in an environment that if you get caught outside for longer than 15 minutes with the wrong clothes on, it's going to cost you your life. Like this is, this is the world that we're in. I tried to explain that to my friends who used to come to Briar crest from California and they'd show up for second semester and walk off the plane in flip-flops and shorts and I'm like oh you're going to die like honestly like <laughs> this is gonna be over for you but uh <laughs> and if you make it this is this is the only this this shows us that we have a God who is alive and well and working because there's no way you should make it here but uh so um it was it was like that and um and I remember as he he went back to try to get her uh a cab he couldn't get one tried multiple cabs and no one could make it there and then he moved back towards her and essentially said, ma'am, you can't stay here. And I remember just sitting there in that moment and all of a sudden I had these, these impulses that started coming over me. I had one impulse that was like, oh, Sid, your car is just outside. Just like, I don't even have to go outside to start it. I've got the electric start. You can start that car. You can get her into your car. And within five minutes, you can have her in a safe place where she can be warm and fed. And there was an impulse in me that was like, you have that. And there was a desire to move there. But there was a competing impulse taking place at the same time within me. The competing impulse was, oh, Sid, it is so warm where you are right now. And you paid good money for this hotel and you should get the most out of it. And not only that, but you're reading your Bible. This is your quiet time, Sid. You know, people, you, no, people should not disturb your quiet time. And I remember just sitting there in that moment with these two impulses that were in me and then realizing I needed to choose. That I had volition to make a decision. And so in that moment, I said, Lord, I'm going to honor you and I'm just going to sit here and keep reading my Bible. This is the call that 
No, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Every single one of you here, you said, that person is a sinful man. That's what you said right there. You said that guy is immoral and he is not living right. Is that correct? Is that what went through your head? Yes, it is. And in almost every culture, at almost any time in history, if that same scenario was presented, that would have been the general same thought that went through a majority of the people within the room. And maybe like me, some of you would have had the impulse and would have tried to justify another way to respond. But at the very foundation, most human beings in most environments at most points in history would know that the right way, the good way, the moral way was to go and help those in need, especially if you have the resources to help. Isn't that true? C.S. Lewis would say that what we're experiencing in that moment is a law that God has designed us with. He would say that we are living with objective, the law of objective moral truth that is a part of humanity ingrained in the creation of humanity that all human beings live with. And there's a couple of realities that we're thinking about when we're talking about objective moral truth. Here's what we mean when we define it. The word objective means this, not dependent on the mind for existence. It's actual, it is. Whatever you think, whatever you feel, this is present and this is real. The moral, the idea of moral is the reality of a moral truth that is a truth concerning good and bad, right and wrong, ought and ought not. It's not just about facts, but it's actually about making a decision, a decision that is right and true and good. And then truth is that which corresponds to the facts of reality, the idea to tell it like it is, that this is the way it is. This is the way it ought to be. And what C.S. Lewis says is he says that objective moral truth is real and it exists in nature. It's been created as a part of the design of humanity and the world. In a similar way where there are uh, natural materialistic truths or laws that we live with, like the idea of gravity. Gravity is. It exists. No matter what you think about it, no matter what you feel about it, it simply is. I have to explain this to my son who doesn't always get this, that there's this reality of gravity at play that I personally can't get away from. He seems to be able to a little bit. So he's playing basketball in Calgary right now and he can jump like crazy and he can dunk and I'm so impressed. He's like six feet, small little guy, but he's dunking it, loves to. His whole dream, most of life was dunking in games. And then he came to me a little while ago and he said, dad, you too can dunk. And I said, no, I can't. The laws say, I cannot, like, I'm 50, you know, this is, you know, and at this point, like, I'm getting, you know, heavier, it's harder for me to get off the ground, the ground pulls me down more, this is just a real law that no matter how much work I do at this stage of my life, I'm not going to break it that way, can't happen, law exists, it's real for me, I can't get away from it, and what C.S. Lewis says is in the same way that we have natural laws in terms of how our world is physically, we also have moral laws in terms of ways that our world is in reality. And the way that we can see that is when we answer specific questions like this. Do objective moral truths exist as a part of reality? Well, if we can say it is always wrong, bad, immoral for anyone to, then yes, we know that to be true. Or if it is always right, good, moral for anyone to, yes, we know that's true. Even people, by the way, who attempt to dismiss the idea of truth by saying something like, it is always right for us to be completely inclusive of all people's others' truths, is actually an absolute moral statement. 
You're saying that this is the way it is and always is and always should be. We can't get away from this idea of absolute objective moral truth. It's embedded in our creation. That's what I'd like to advocate for. Um, Stephen S. Jordan works for an apologetics organization went through all of C.S. Lewis' works and he said there's eight reasons essentially in his works that C.S. Lewis gives for believing in objective truth. That's embedded in reality. And here's what he says. Number one, he says quarreling between two or more individuals is a sign of objective moral truth. Um, when quarreling occurs, individuals assume that there's an objective standard of right and wrong of which each person is aware and one has broken. Why quarrel? if no objective standard exists. Why would we even do that? It's embedded, it's there. Uh, the second is, it's obvious that an objective moral standard exists. Throughout history, mankind has generally agreed that the human idea of decent behavior is obvious to everyone, just like the story I told at the very beginning. Generally speaking, this is an obvious reality. Uh, for instance, it's self-evident that torturing a child for fun is morally reprehensible. Few people would disagree with that. Uh, the idea of mistreatment. One might say, and C.S. Lewis says this, one might say that he or she does not believe in objective morality. However, the moment they are mistreated, they will react as if such a standard exists. When one denies the existence of an objective standard of behavior, the moment they are mistreated, they will be complaining it's not fair. The fourth reason that C.S. Lewis says objective moral reality exists is measuring value systems. As soon as an individual states that one value system is better than another or attempts to replace a particular value system with a better one, they assume that there's an objective standard of judgment. So we live in this world where we're constantly assuming this idea that there are, that there are these, um, these moral standards that we live with. Uh, the sixth one is reasoning over moral issues. When men or women reason over moral issues, it is assumed that there is an objective standard of right and wrong. If there is no objective standard, then reasoning over moral issues is on the same level as one arguing with his friends about the best flavor of ice cream at the local parlor. I prefer this and I don't like that. In short, a world where morality is a matter of preference makes it impossible to have meaningful conversation over issues like idolatry, sexuality, abortion, immigration, drugs, bullying, stealing, and so on. Number seven, feeling a sense of obligation over moral matters. The words ought and ought not imply the existence of an objective moral law that mankind recognizes and feels obligated to follow. And then finally, number eight, making excuses for not behaving appropriately. And what C.S. Lewis says is that there would be no reason for us to worry about not behaving appropriately if we didn't believe that there was some sort of objective standard that we should function by. You know, my wife is gone this, this past week, and um, so she'll get home tomorrow before I do. And I got to tell you guys, I'm so excited because last night, yesterday before I came, I, I cleaned our house. Uh, and I did a good job. You know what I mean? Like, I did a good job. I, I got all the uh, beds stripped, and I did the laundry on the beds, got all the garbage out. That was no small thing. That had piled up a fair amount ever since our kids left our home. I have no idea how garbage actually gets cleaned up anymore, so I'm learning. It's a quite a process for me. But it was funny because the last time she came home, I didn't do that work. And, uh, and I had to explain to her, like, why I didn't do the work. I mean, 
Tom Brady was playing football on TV and we all know at any moment, like he could die playing football. He's that old. So you take every moment that you can to watch him. And I had to, the truth of the matter was I was just trying to make excuses for my poor discipline to actually serve my wife the way that I was supposed to serve her. There would be no reason for us to try to make excuses over the way that we have functioned or behaved inappropriately if we didn't actually believe that there was a standard that we are called to live by. You know, I think, it's, I think as, I, as I wrestle with these ideas, what it says to me is that there is a good reason. There's, there, there's, there's appropriate reasons for us to advocate for the idea of objective moral truth. And we don't have to go back to our scriptures. We can simply look at reality the way things are to be able to suggest that we actually all as human beings live underneath this concept or idea that there's objective moral truth. So we lay that foundation. Now, as followers of Christ, we don't just believe that there is objective moral truth. We actually believe that we've been given and can know this objective moral truth. And we actually want to invite others to join in this belief and experience and submission to objective moral truth. And this, this our culture finds difficult. And I think this is one of the great challenges that followers of Christ have today in terms of engaging culture well is to be able to deal with the appropriate concerns that many in culture have when they hear about our exclusive claims about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, Jesus said, uh, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, the number one concern that people seem to have in our culture is this idea that if we commit to an objective moral truth, that that type of commitment, that level of religion will confine our freedom. Instead, what culture says is they say, certainly there may be a type of truth, but truth is whatever you believe in, whatever you feel is right for you, that's your truth. And my truth is whatever I believe and what I feel is right for me, that's my truth. And we should not try to convert each other over to our own personal experience of truth or perspective of truth. And what our culture says to us over and over again is you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. And if you embrace that type of thinking and way of being that worldview, you will experience freedom. You'll experience freedom. I think there's times and seasons when we experience a type of freedom. But generally what I've experienced in my life is when I simply do whatever I like, there comes a point in time where I don't actually like what I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? Generally speaking. Um, I remember when I was at camp, there was a young boy at camp, uh, at one of the camps we were working at. And he'd had some real struggles in terms of behavior management. And so we'd come to a place where we thought we were going to have to send him home. And as we sat down and talked to him about it, he began to unpack his story. And we realized that his home life was really complicated and difficult. And in fact, before he came to camp, he had been in uh, at the juvenile detention center. And, and one of the people that were in authority over him had said, hey, we're going to send you to camp. But if you get kicked out of camp, then you're going to go back into the home. And so um, he, was, he desperately wanted to make it through camp, but it was so hard for him. And so we fought and we worked with him. And I remember I was sitting with him one evening and, and we'd spent a little bit of time shooting some hoops together. And then I finally just turned to him and I said, hey, if, if you could change anything in your life, what would you change? And he just kind of stopped for a second. Then he looked at me and he said, you know, he goes, when I was 10 years old, I made a decision that I would not listen to my mom and I would do whatever I wanted to do. And he said, if I could change anything, I'd go back to that and I'd change that. I'd change that. 
And I do think that there is this, this reality where often when we simply live however we like, there comes to a place where we don't actually like how we live because the reality is this, that true freedom always requires a type of discipline and even a type of loss of freedom in order to experience the freedom of doing what we've been designed to do. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you look at a great musician, a fantastic pianist, who seems to have incredible freedom when it comes to playing the piano, generally speaking, the way that they've experienced or achieved that freedom is because many times in life, they've said no to other types of freedoms. Many times in life, they've said no to getting up late. They've said no to going out with friends. They've said no to engaging in other activities so that they could focus on this specific activity that they'd been uniquely gifted and designed for. And the limiting of certain freedoms gave them incredible freedom to actually experience their playing of the piano. Sorry about that. We're popping quite a bit. Just let me know if I should go to a handheld. Um, that'll be fine. And I apologize. This is my fault here. So we know that limiting certain freedoms can actually allow us to experience greater freedoms. Now, the other reality when it comes to limiting freedoms is that we need to make sure that we place ourselves under the discipline and constraints that actually free us up to do what we are designed to do. Uh, for example, no matter how much I would discipline myself and limit myself in freedom to become an offensive lineman in the NFL, notice the number of NFL um, illustrations that we're using today, it's that season. No matter how much I would limit myself in other freedoms, it would be impossible for me to enjoy the freedom of being an NFL offensive lineman. I wasn't designed for that. I'm under six feet tall, I'm not big enough, actually quite slow. It's just never going to happen. I'm not wired for that. So limiting freedom does in all in areas does not guarantee that I'll experience freedom in others. It's when we limit freedoms in certain areas so that we can be free to actually be who God's designed and created us to be. And this is what we realize when it comes to Jesus Christ. The reason why I advocate for surrendering and submitting our lives to Jesus Christ, to his truth and the way of being, is for two reasons. Number one, because he's our creator. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The Bible said he knit us together in our mother's wombs, and so he knows us, and he loves us infinitely more than we could ever dream or imagine, which was revealed through his work on the cross for us. And so he is good to us. And so when Jesus comes to us and says, hey, I know what I've designed you for. I want you to live under that. And we discipline ourselves to live under his truth. We experience the freedom to be the people we've been designed to be. One of the areas where I think we see this right now in our culture is connected to the epidemic of mental health amongst young people that we're experiencing. And I don't want to be overly simplistic and I know I'm in danger of doing so. But I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we are experiencing this epidemic today is because we have placed a pressure upon children that they were never designed to carry when we've said to them, you can be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to be, do whatever feels good. We've placed upon children this pressure to actually create their own identity. And it is overwhelming. I mean, what if we don't actually like what we create? What do we do with that if we've invested in it so much? What if we fail in the pursuit of our identity? What if we're manipulated into pursuing an identity that isn't actually who we were meant to be? 
Because our culture tells us that who we are is defined by how we feel about ourselves, it is so we are so vulnerable and open to the manipulation of others to reimagine who we actually are. And I think this leaves us in a place where we are struggling so much. But instead, what I believe and what I advocate for is if we would surrender to the God who has designed us and the God who infinitely loves us. And instead of creating our identity, we choose to discover the identity that he has given to us. It transforms us. We become resilient. Even though we may fail at different activities, we're good because we're not our activities. We become stable. Though emotions rise and fall, we're good because our emotions do not dictate the truth. Christ does. We're strong. Though other people may have various agendas for our lives, we entrust ourselves to the one who only has one redemptive agenda, to make us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to make us more into the people we were created to be, no matter what the situation is we find ourselves in. And finally, and maybe most importantly in our culture, we can become the most inclusive and the ones who give most dignity to all other people. Why? Because we don't have to be insecure about what others say about us. When someone comes and disagrees with us or challenges our beliefs about ourselves or our beliefs about the way we see the world, we don't have to be insecure about that because their voice is not the most powerful voice in our lives. The voice of the creator is the most powerful voice in our lives. And that positions us uniquely to be able to actually love and serve all others, including our enemies. Did you hear that? Including our enemies. And it's this beautiful call that God calls us to as his followers when we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second one. The response, by the way, is that the gospel frees us to be who we ought to be. But the second concern is that religion is a way of oppression. When much in our culture hear the verse in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the responses is that of that's so exclusive that you would claim there's only one way. And the other response would be, don't you know that that exclusivism leads to oppression? That it continually moves us to attack the other? And I understand that. And I think that danger and that threat is real. And I think actually that that reality has been lived out by many in the name of Christ. But that's actually not what Jesus calls us to be. That's actually not the way of Christ. And the reason for God, Timothy Keller, is speaking about this idea of objective moral truth and how religion can actually be a barrier to world peace. And there's a few things he says. He says this, that when it comes to religion and it comes to claiming to have objective moral truth, number one, having that truth can naturally lead people to feeling superior over others. And it can lead us to a place of, of inappropriately engaging others. Number two, religion tells people that they're saved by devotedly performing that truth, which moves them to separate from those who are less devoted and pure in life. It's why we see the polarization within our countries these days. Number three, it's easy for one religious group to stereotype and caricature another, moving us to become oppressive, abusive, or even violent against others. This is a real concern, and it's been experienced many times within our world, so it's real and understandable. But Christianity, true Christianity, actually provides a firm basis for respecting other people's faiths and worldviews and religions. Number one, 
True Christianity actually believes that all people are made in the image of God and capable of goodness and wisdom. We believe this. And so we live to give others honor and dignity. Secondly, true Christianity believes that there is humility in acknowledging that we are all sinful. Not only are we made in the image of God, yes, but all of us are actually sinful. We fall short. And we as followers of Christ actually assume that we will be worse than others in many ways. In fact, one of the reasons why followers of Christ should be the most loving to the most marginalized people is because we know that apart from his grace, all of us, we are the marginalized ones. None of us measure up. All of us are on the outside looking in. Third, God's grace does not come to those who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and who acknowledge their need for a savior. This is the way that we are supposed to be as followers of Christ who embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. And then finally, why are we open to others? At the very foundation of our belief system is the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. It was the way of our king, right? It was the way of our king. Jesus Christ gave up his position at the right hand of God and came to earth as a mere human being and humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross for who? His enemies, those who were against him. And then he rose again three days later and he continues to work and move, transforming and drawing us to himself through the work of his Holy Spirit. This is the way that our king has, has moved and this is how we should move as well. This is what God is calling us to. And when we embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, we become like Jesus and we become free and others experience his goodness. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16, Jesus is speaking to his followers. He says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we as followers of Christ truly embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, where he becomes the center of who we are and we begin to apply our lives to him and we understand that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through him, we begin to live a life that others can start to see as good. Isn't that amazing? Others can start to see as good. You know, the early church in the, in the, in the first century was in an environment where in many ways they were, they were seen as pagans because they didn't have enough gods. They only had one God and they were so exclusive in their beliefs. But what allowed them to have a transforming presence in their society was that they were radical about being self-sacrificial in their love of others, including their enemies. And it was transformative. And this is what we are called to as well. We've always been called to it, but this is what we are called to here as well. Um, in a book called The New Tolerance, Josh McDowell said this, there's three things that love won't do. It won't neglect people's needs. It won't minister condemnation but it also won't ignore the truth because we know that the truth will set you free. And then he goes on and he says this, tolerance says this, you must approve of what I do, but love responds, I must do something harder. 
I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Tolerance says you must agree with me, but love responds I must do something harder. I will tell you the truth because I am convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says you must allow me to have my way. Love responds I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you are worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes risks. Tolerance glorifies division. Love seeks unity. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. When we believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and our belief leads us to express the love of Jesus Christ, we become people who are agents of transformation in the environments that God places us because his love is seen clearly through our lives. And that's what God is calling us to do. Let me pray. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for who you are. You're so good to us. And I pray, Jesus, that we would, um, we would be a people who are radically committed to your truth. But that commitment to your truth would be expressed as a radical commitment of self-sacrificial love for others. May we be a people who offer dignity and love and care to even our enemies. And Lord, by the way we live out our truth, may others be drawn to the truth of who you are and experience the freedom that your truth gives. We pray this for your glory, for our joy, for the good of others in your name. Amen.